Are you ready to do this? History, a window that provides us with a brief look back into time of ancient people that changed the world, to hopefully unravel the mysteries of ancient cultures and to learn about what people believed in and would most certainly die for. Is it possible to learn from the mistakes of others who made choices based upon these beliefs of so long ago? and even accept responsibility for the horrors that they potentially inflicted upon people for generations to come. For this is the history of religions and, of course, their gods. Hello, my heathens. Welcome back to the show. Today is Friday. Thank fucking God it's Friday, right? And it's the 25th. And I'm so excited because next week, March 3rd, I believe lands on a Thursday, I go see the band Ghost. That's right. They're going to be here in Los Angeles, California. Actually, Anaheim, California, but um, at the Honda Center. So I will be there. And if you guys are fans of the band, um, wave to me. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Um, I'd love to meet you in the lobby and buy you a beer. But hey, guys, yes, I will be there at the Honda Center next week to see my favorite band in the whole wide world. If you never heard of these guys, they are the Swedish band Ghost. They're kind of a symphonic, theatrical, satanic um, Swedish band. Makeup, masks, the whole nine yards. Anyway, pretty freaking fantastic. But anyway, so this episode, um, we're going to start moving on into um, the sixth century kind of merging from where Christianity left off and continues to evolve into where a new prophet emerges some 200 years later, right? In Mecca. And a new religion explodes in the, um, in the Middle East. Um, so anyway, that's going to be the topic for today's show. Probably going to keep it right around an hour. Um, so with what limited information I know about Islam, because I'm mostly, you know, you guys that know me, I'm all about New Testament and the uh, Second Temple Judaism. That is really where I specialize. Um, everything from 330 CE, from the Alexand BCE, from the Alexandrian period, all the way up to the Antiochian crisis, into the fall of the temple and the development of the New Testament um, scriptures. So that's my specialty. That's what I love. But um, I feel as if we can't move forward into the um, Crusades just yet until we actually establish a little bit about what was going on. Um, additional competition for land and finances and, um, you know, the business of religion, right? And so Islam really became a, um, you know, a point of difficulty for Christianity and its leaders. And um, it's, you have to look at it, churches, churches and businesses competing for a similar territory. Well, something's got to give. Well, this is the same freaking analogy. Businesses, massive corporations trying to compete. Same thing with these religions. And instead of CEOs, they're gods. 
then profits are the uh, vice presidents of sales and business operations, right? So you, you can kind of look at it like that. So the things that I'm going to touch on that I do know about this um, with speaking specifically about the religion of Islam is that we will talk about the limited information that we know about Muhammad, you know, the, the prophet, um, some of the um, things that we can compare found in the Quran into what we find in the Old Testament scripture as well as the New Testament. Um, we'll talk about some of their laws that are questioned, such as the Sharia law. Um, but I don't need to talk about any conspiracy shit like, uh, you know, the 9-11 towers and all that kind of stuff. We don't need to talk about that kind of stuff. We're just specifically talking about the religion, its growth, how it compared to Christianity, um, Judeo-Christianity, um, for that matter, and then um, the role that it played. But then I really want to talk about roles that it played in history, excuse me. Then I really want to talk about something that kind of got me interested into um into um, the Islamic belief is I had a debate with a Muslim probably a good three, four, five years ago, and he started bringing up a lot of scientific claims that were made within the Quran that um, only a real God would have those answers to and know about those things back in the 6th and 7th century. Well, I called bullshit on him, and we're going to go through those things. We're going to go through those scientific claims and how my rebuttal or my refutation is going to be about how many of those claims were actually common knowledge during that period of classical history. Anyway, um, guys, thanks for hanging on for so long. Um, this is episode seven of season four. And um, again, if you've got friends that might like this particular episode, my format, this particular show, um, yeah, please feel free to share it. And um, one more thing, and I know I'm talking really fast, but I just had like nine cups of coffee. Um, if you're noticing the thumbnails and the artwork that's coming up when you open up the podcast, appreciate those artists. Um, maybe um, go and take a look at Instagram and give them a call out or a shout out. Say, hey, love your art. I saw it on the History of Religions and Their Gods. And um, very, very cool. So um, I don't need to call them out right now, but one of them is Mary Lifro, who um, I absolutely love. She's a uh, brilliant, beautiful, sexy artist. And I am, she doesn't want me to tell you where she's from, but you can go check out her page and you can see it in the description of the episode in the, um, in the particular each individual episode. And another artist that I've been talking to is Andy Grill. And um, he's the one you've seen that has, um, there's a picture of one of the Caesars in one of the most recent episodes. And he also did a one of, he did one of Turian uh, from um, Game of Thrones. So anyway, very cool. And I hope you guys appreciate it and give those guys a shout out. All right, now on for the episode. Guys, ready to talk about some history here? As Christianity continued to evolve and spread, the Western Latin side and the Eastern Greek divisions Christianity began to take on distinctive shapes by the 6th century. Whereas in the East, the church maintained its own structure and character and evolved a little bit slower. And in the West, the bishops of Rome, being the popes, were forced to adapt a little bit more quickly and flexibly to drastically changing circumstances. In particular, whereas the bishop of the East maintained clear allegiance to the Eastern Roman Emperor, the bishop of Rome, while maintaining nominal allegiances to the Eastern Emperor, 
was forced to negotiate delicate balances with the barbarian rulers of the former western provinces. Although the greater number of Christians remained in the east, the developments in the west would set the stage for a major development in the Christian world during the later Middle Ages. Although the religion was trying to unify, it still grew apart into several unique and different facets of understanding what Christ was and his relationship to the Father, as well as was he 100% divine or a demigod. Many of these factions still may have been considered as outcasts or heretical, but they still continued to grow substantially. And that's why we have over 45,000 versions of Christianity today globally. But near or by the end of the 6th century, an Arabian religious zealot, a leader by the name of Muhammad, would begin to spread the message of the Quran, which includes some traditions that would be similar to those of the Christian and the Jewish faith. This new faith, however, was called submission. Or in Arabic, it would be called Islam, which proclaimed the worship and the obedience of a true, purely monotheistic God, Allah, as the purpose of life. And Islam would ultimately prove to be the greatest challenge that the Christian church would face during the entire Middle Ages. Muhammad preached that the Quran was the correction and the true word of God that came through him, the prophet Muhammad. Because there was so much corruption and division in the Judeo-Christian faith. He brought a single unified Arabic version of Judaism to millions. And by the 630s, Muhammad the prophet, he had united the entire Arabian Peninsula under Islam and Islamic rule, including the former Christian kingdom of Yemen. And following Muhammad's death, a Muslim empire, or caliphate, emerged, which would begin efforts to expand beyond Arabia. Shortly before Muhammad's death, the Roman Empire and the Sassanid Persian Empire had concluded decades of war, leaving both empires completely crippled. Islam would prove to be one of the world's largest religions that ignited in the Middle East, in Mecca and Medina and just 1,500 kilometers from the holy city of Jerusalem, and it's once home to the holy temple of Jewish worship. And only 200 years after Christianity proved to be successful, backed with financial power and ultimate control. So where did this mysterious new religion even come from anyway, and what do we really know about it? Well, Starters, legend has it that in the year 610 of the Common Era, during contemplation, a self-proclaimed prophet by the name of Muhammad, he claims that he had been visited by an angel who came in visions, just like Moses and Peter and Paul, by an angel named Gabriel. Well, this Muhammad claimed that this angel recited to him orally verses that would make up what would be called the Quran today which is the holiest books that is widely used by all two billion Muslims around the world. Literally, the same amount that there are Christians today. That's four billion people. It is literally accepted as the word of Allah directly off his celestial lips. 
which is just the Arabic word for God. And, it, and it's the perfect word in every way and should not and cannot be challenged or changed without death. Now, legend also has it that this self-proclaimed prophet Muhammad said that he received these celestial messages word for word, and all by an angel called Gabriel between the year 610 all the way to 632. That's 22 years of sitting down with this angel and visions and getting these texts verbally or orally handed down to him. And that these texts were the direct and inerrant word from Allah, the God of Islam himself. And that he didn't just make it up on his own, even though he was questioned. Now, Muhammad also identified Allah as the same Abrahamic God from the Judaic Old Testament, but with some new differences in opinion, some changes of heart, and even a new chosen people, the Arabs of Saudi Arabia, specifically those living in Mecca. Now, Muhammad actually rode the coattails of Judaism, just like Christianity did, and accepted the Jewish scriptures with references to more than 50 people, from Moses all the way up to Jesus including the Virgin Mother Mary. Now, Islam actually accepts most of the Christian Bible, with exception to the crucifixion scenario and the resurrection story. They don't believe that happened. Now, Muslims, they consider the Quran as later corrections and additions to the Bible, making it more perfect and updated with the true word of God because of so many mixed communications with the Old Testament from the Pentateuch to the um, Septuagint and all the different variations that were launched and all the mixed stories, especially in Christianity, right? I mean, when you're talking about Muhammad, you know, this guy, and what what is he seeing and still seeing? He's seeing hundreds of different variations of Christianity with different ideas on theology, and they can't get their idea right of who God is and who God was. If he's a good God, bad God, Jesus is replacing God. So his head is literally about to explode. So literally, the Quran is the Bible 2.0. And then by the year 613, Muhammad the prophet begins proselytizing. Less than 200 years after Constantine made Christianity to the state religion, and enforced it in all of its provinces, from Egypt all the way up to Syria, all the way into Ethiopia, and all the way into Yemen. It's quite an impact of one religion, is it not? But Muhammad begins proselytizing these words that were dictated to him directly from an angelic being, and he takes them to the public. City centers, town squares, villages, have you? Now, in the beginning, we're told that he was actually mocked and ignored mostly by people. And probably because most of them were Christian. But not all of them were Christian. There were also people that were practicing Zoroastrianism and paganism and Judaism. Now, it's important, and we'll have to, I'll, I'll try to cram it in here, but um, when I say paganism, not the same as like the Greek gods and all that kind of stuff that we're talking about, that were or the Roman gods that we're talking about in, um, you know, from the third century back. But we're actually talking about Middle Eastern paganism. They had an, an entire pantheon of Middle Eastern gods and sub-gods. 
and we'll have to go through those because each one of those little God stories has their own little narrative. And yes, just like Christianity and just like Judaism, well, Islam also takes in many of those stories and incorporates new stories around them, changing out the characters and the names, then placing new characters inside those particular narratives. It's no different because it makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit more about who Muhammad was, but obviously very, very familiar with Judaism, extremely familiar with Christianity, and very familiar with Middle Eastern paganism. Well, anyway, one thing that we have learned about prophets, everything that we've learned about in time, everything that we've analyzed through this entire show, is that prophets do pick up followers, as did Muhammad. And over time, his congregations did grow geographically. And many even began to migrate to Ethiopia, where they continued to preach and proselytize the words of Allah and the Quran. And by 621, Islam converts traveled to Mecca to meet their new prophet, Muhammad, making, making a pilgrimage, pledging to obey and to respond to the call of Allah whenever war is necessary. Now, there's pretty good reasons why these guys would convert from these other religions. We talked about them. All the different factions of Christianity that were in the Middle East, the Zoroastrianism, even the different variations of Judaism. Well, I think what made this attractive, what made Allah attractive, first of all, just being God, so that automatically gets the ears perked up for the Christians and for the Jews, when he's saying it's the same Abrahamic God, but they got the story wrong and it's updated and God wants to talk to everybody now. Well, some listened to it, but it was about unification. The one thing that Christianity could not control was unification. So when you're talking to these, mostly these poor individuals, farmers, slaves, and what have you, they listen because there's so many different variations of everything that's no true way to God. Well, Muhammad is smart. Muhammad gets it. He had the same struggles. We already talked about it. He's already well aware, well aware of all the verses found in the Old Testament, the stories, the characters, the, the typology of the God. Right? Yahweh, God of the Jews. He's very familiar with the polytheism found in Christianity, which just drove him nuts. Even though Christians try to call it more of a unification of God, just God in the flesh, right? We talked about the uh, the whole Trinity episode. But in uh, but not in Allah's mind, but in Muhammad's mind, this provides a clean, clear-cut solution for one solidified religion with updates and instead of the Jews being the chosen people no it was the Arabic community those of Saudi Arabia it was great and it paid off it paid off in in, in huge huge amounts as we'll see as we digest through this history Arab conquest began to appear in Egypt Persia and Iraq where thousands converted from the other mega-religions, including Christianity. And then finally, by the year 650, the verses from the Quran 
are finally compiled into book form. But for some reason, all of the originals are destroyed by order of Caliph Uthman. And this happened sometime immediately after the death of Muhammad, we're told. And then between the years 650 and 750, that entire century, Arab conquest continued to bring Islam to Africa, Spain, and Asia. Then Arab armies, they quickly established an Islamic empire during the 7th and the 8th centuries. But it took far longer for an Islamic society to emerge within its frontiers. Indeed, despite widespread images of conversion by the sword, in popular culture that is, the process of Islamization in the early period was actually quite slow, complex, and often, we're told, nonviolent. Forced conversion was actually fairly uncommon, and religious change was driven far more by factors such as those wanting intermarriage, uh, economic self-interests, and political allegiances. But non-Muslims were generally entitled to continue practicing their faiths, their previous faiths, even in Islamic territories, at the time, that is, right? Provided that they abide by the laws of their rulers and paid special taxes, of course. Sound familiar, Jews and Romans? Now, Muslim elites... They sometimes even discouraged the conversion. For when Nas Muslims embraced Islam, they no longer had to provide these taxes to the state. And therefore, the state's fiscal base threatened to contract. Compounding this was the belief among some that Islam was a special dispensation only for the Arab community. And when non-Arabs converted, they were sometimes treated as second-class citizens despised as a little better than Christians, Jews, or other infidels. But history shows that in the earliest stages of Islam, Christians and Muslims actually rubbed shoulders together in some of the most intimate of settings, from workshops to markets to living on the same city blocks and even in marital beds. Not surprisingly, these interactions gave rise to some overlapping practices, including behaviors that kind of blurred the lines between um, Islam and Christian faith. But to ensure that these conversions and assimilations went exclusively in the direction of Islam, Muslim officials started executing some of the most deliberate boundary crossers seen in Christians. And then Christians in turn revered some of these people as saints and later Christian mythology and legend, of course. So let's stop down for just a second here, and let's just talk a little bit more about this Muhammad guy. Because what do we really know about him historically? I mean, did he even exist? You know, we have no originals, just like the Old Testament, just like the New Testament. The copies that we have are centuries later, you know, century later editions with revisions and redactions and updates and corrections and um, interpolations, you, you, you name it. Well, same thing with the Quran. I mean, other than we're supposed to believe that this guy, Muhammad, received all these messages just like Paul did, although Paul's only lasted for a few moments and then some uh, miscellaneous transmissions between he and Jesus, the you know Jesus Christ, the Christian um, son of God. And then where Muhammad is receiving this over the course of, what, 22, 23 years, by the way, transmission orally by an angel. And um, I guess he's got a notepad and he's writing down what Gabriel is telling him. And then this is what he preaches. So this is really all we really know. So 
the version that we have now today is also a little bit iffy, and it's worth even further discussion after this, maybe in another episode. But there's a lot of there's there's a lot of ways that the texts are read that could read one way or read another. It's really coming down to the um, interpreters, um, you know, ideas and what they read and how they rewrote it. So there's a lot to go on about that. So I'll, I'll pick that up in another episode, perhaps. But according to Islamic tradition, basically Muhammad followed a now extinct Abrahamic faith that was similar to Aryan Christianity, but with a stronger emphasis on following some Jewish laws, such as no pork and no working on the Sabbath, etc. And you must go to the festival. You always have to go to the festival. They love their festivals. But outside of that tradition, we have very little to no evidence of Muhammad even ever existing. Arabia was a worthless backwater at that time that even the Romans didn't see as worthwhile or even worth you know, going to look at to consider conquering. Nobody outside of the region cared about one random little warlord or cult leader for that fact until the Arabs were united under the caliphate. Now, for those who don't know, a caliphate is basically, it's an institution or even a public office governing a territory under Islamic rule. And it still exists today. And the person who holds this office carries the title of caliph and is considered a political religious successor to the Islamic prophet of Muhammad and a leader of the entire Muslim world as well. And historically, the caliphates were communities that were based in Islam and developed into multi-ethnic transnational empires. Now, in all my podcasts, it always gets juicy, right? I get you guys juicy in your car. Well, this is where this particular story gets juicy, because what we do know is, is that there were some Arab tribes which were, in fact, heavily Jewish. A lot that were Christian in all of its different facets, and a lot who were pagans. And now, the clan that Muhammad was born into, Muhammad's tribe, well, they were largely pagan Quraysh, who were the custodians of the Kaaba, which basically housed idols from all over Arabia and made a fortune off of pilgrimages to Mecca. And what we're told, which is partly why the Quraysh chased him out when he came down from a mountain claiming to have received messages straight from the angel Gabriel, because it was a, because it was a threat to their business a threat to their business. Now, looking back, the business around pilgrimages to Mecca, it turned out fine. Knowing this isn't hard to imagine because he followed the tribe's beliefs, at least for a little while anyway, except that his father died when his mother was four months pregnant, with him, actually, and then Mommy Dearest died when he was five years old, leaving him in the care of his uncle who, according to Islamic tradition, was a staunch pagan up to his death. So again, it isn't hard to imagine that this guy Muhammad would have likely have been raised following a, a pagan belief as a child, with a whole pantheon of gods and a whole book full of stories already in place. Now, as for pre-Islamic adulthood for Muhammad here, well, anything is possible, really. I mean, when we look at it, Mecca was also a, a trading hub, and it was also a pilgrimage ground, or a site. And, yeah, I keep using the word, but what is a pilgrimage? Well, basically, it's a journey that one would take, 
often to an unknown or, or a foreign place, right? Where a person can go in search of themselves for new expanded meanings and ideas about themselves or others or nature or even a higher good and all obtained through the experience. Well, it can also lead to personal transformation after which the pilgrim returns to their daily life. So between the various pagan traditions represented in the region, there were also thousands of Christians and thousands of Jews who also came through to sell their wares and their pieces and their art. But in the case of Christians, at least, they came to spread their religion. So between all of that and how Islam views the Christian Mary as blessed and a holy woman, with some minority opinions even claiming her to be a prophet and Jesus as the promised Messiah and prophet of Allah, but not a deity unto himself, more like a, akin to the Jewish concept of Messiah. But Muhammad could have converted to Christianity or any one of these denominations of another as an adult when he was 40. And likely it would be the Aryan branch of Christianity, which also had the views of Jesus and the Holy Spirit not being part of the Godhead, but rather being creations of God, or even the aforementioned, now extinct, Abrahamic religions. In fact, when Islam was really starting to spread outside of Arabia, um, most Christian bishops just thought it was another form of Christianity. Heretical, and of course, but not a new faith entirely. So pretty good stuff, right? So let's just go and dig a little bit deeper into this guy, Muhammad, and what we know about him. And again, I'm actually talking to scholars and reading some published papers and things like that, so I'm not making this shit up on the fly. But Muhammad's father, well, his name was Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib. And his mother was Amina bint Wab. Now, Muhammad's family, including his parents, followed their ancient idol-worshipping pagan religions. So his family, even including grandparents, they were pagan idol worshippers. Now, of course, Muslims claimed that they were monotheistic, despite the fact that Muhammad's family held the hereditary and lucrative rights of providing for pilgrims. We already talked about what pilgrims were that were coming for the pagan pilgrimage in Makkah. Now, Muhammad's parental great-grandfather and maternal grandfather were named Abdul Manaf which literally translates to slaves of pagan god Manaf. Now put that in your cigar and smoke it, right? Now Muhammad's grandfather, Abdul Batalab, who basically he had promised to sacrifice one of his sons to the pagan idol, Habal, if he was successful in digging a water well. And Muhammad himself was also an idol-worshipping pagan all the way up until the age of 40 when he founded Islam. Now, that's pretty great, right? <laughs> now, Muhammad actually had a great uncle that he loved, and, but he rejected Islam. Even his favorite uncle, Abu Talib, refused to embrace uh, Muhammad's new religion, Islam, even on his deathbed, despite imploring him. He insisted on dying in the faith of his father and died a pagan polytheist. And at the age of 40, the rich, and carefree Muhammad decided to seek out fame and fortune. And for this purpose, folks, he invented a new religion, which he named Islam. So with that said, a prominent feature of Islam is that most of its rites and its practices were in fact adopted from pagan Arabian rituals of Muhammad's time. But 
to hide the pagan rituals and the pagan origins, Muhammad claimed that Allah initially sanctioned these rites. In fact, before, during, and after his mission, Muhammad continued to perform these rites that were nothing more than idolatry. For instance, a hadith of al-Bakari records that prior to his calling, Muhammad made sacrifices to the pagan idols. In fact, Muhammad's indulgences and idolatrous practices continued right into his alleged prophetic calling. Now, we must keep in mind that at this time in Muhammad's life, there was no revelation alleging that Abraham and Ishmael originally built the Kaaba. That came later in his life. As far as Muhammad was concerned, the Kaaba was nothing more than a pagan shrine erected in honor of pagan deities. Now, you all know exactly what the Kaaba is. You've all seen it. The Kaaba literally means the cube, the big black cube. And you've seen it. You've seen it in memes. I've seen it all over Instagram. It's that huge cube-looking building where you see all the Muslims praying around it. And it's in the center of Islam's most important mosque, the Mazid al-Haram. And it's located in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. And to, and to Muslims, it is the most sacred site in all of Islam. It's considered by Muslims to be the actual house of God. And it is the Qibla, direction of prayer for Muslims around the world when performing Salah, literally faces towards Jerusalem. Now, some Muslims actually try to read back to this pre-Islamic history, the belief that Abraham and Ishmael built the Kaaba. But in doing so, they only managed to do further damage to Muhammad's prophetic claim. Now, for example, the oldest biographer of Muhammad's life, his name is Ibn Ishaq, mentions an event which supposedly took place before Muhammad's time, where certain Jewish rabbis are said to have told a king that the Kaaba was built by Abraham. Yet, Ashok, by mentioning this story, actually begins to incriminate Muhammad's story a little bit. I'm going to read a long quote here from the life of Muhammad, page 8 through 9. And I begin the quote. They, the rabbis, told that the sole object of the tribe was to destroy him and his army. We know of no other temple in the land which God has chosen for himself, said they. And if you do what they suggest, you and your men will perish. The king asked them what he should do when he got there. And they told him to do what the people of Mecca did. Circumambulate the temple, to venerate and to honor it, and to shave his head, and to behave with all humility until he had left its precincts. Well, the king asked why they too should not do likewise. Well, the rabbis replied that it was indeed the temple of their father Abraham, but the idols which the inhabitants had set up around it and the blood which they shed there represented an inseparable obstacle. They are unclean polytheists, they said, or words to that effect. And that's by Galermi, The Life of Muhammad, page 8 through 9. So, despite the Jews allegedly making the claim that Abraham had in fact built the Kaaba, they still refused to partake of any performing pilgrimage to it, due to all of the idols that were contained there within which defiled it. And yet, our guy Muhammad here, who is supposed to be God's final prophet, he has no hesitation in running around a structure littered with abominable objects, detested by the true God himself, Allah. 
So what it looks like here is Muhammad actually created his religion, Islam, by putting together a big mishmash of Arabic pagan beliefs, um, Judaism, um, some Christianity. And most of the Islamic mythology actually comes from Judaic and Christian mythology, like the virgin birth, Abraham, Moses, as well as Jesus. And there were many things that were borrowed from these Arabic paganisms, like their stories and their rituals and their rites. The way that they pray, such as praying five times a day. The original symbol of the Arabic pre-Islamic goddess Alat, which was later co-opted by emerging Islamic religion, is the moon and the crescent symbol that you see within their, um, on their religious flag. Allah was actually a pagan father god that Muhammad repurposed into a new god called Allah. That would be held as the god of his new religion, Islam. It's no different than what the authors did for the Old Testament, the Abrahamic God, right? By co-opting or um, reusing or re-opting the Yahweh deity, right? There are many of them that were being worshipped in um, Judea in the 3rd century BCE, all the way up through Assyria, even in Egypt. And they basically took the one and they put all the features from all of these different deities into one creating Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Well, so now basically we have kind of the same thing going on in Muhammad's mind, except for this time, he's the God of the Saudi Arabians, the God of the desert Arabs, the God of Islam. Now let's just talk a little bit about the contents of the Quran and what exactly did Allah say to Muhammad anyway, especially with respect to Jesus Christ from the New Testament, right? So obviously Muhammad and the later redactors and editors are aware of the Jesus Christ character because there were a multitude of different factions of Christianity throughout Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. So we know this, even in Mecca, as well as dozens of different um, Jewish religions, right? Um, and we know that there were different personality cults found within Judaism, just like in Christianity. And not to mention all the others that we talked about, Zoroanthrianism, and you have it. So this is all before Muhammad brings his innovation and creates his new found religion, based on the new Arabic God. But let's talk about the Jesus that um, Muhammad or the later redactors want us to understand. Well, they maintain that Jesus was not actually crucified at all, or was divine, or had any special miraculous powers. Well, they actually hold that he was a prophet, just like Mohammed. Mohammed is just like Jesus, just like Moses, so on and so forth, just like Noah. Mohammed is positioning himself to be one of those. So you see, we actually have a couple schools of thought here in terms of what Mohammed was thinking, or at least his later editors and redactors, right? Again, we have no actual originals of what Mohammed may have said, and all of the originals were burned. But couple thoughts of, you know, and if you've been following along with this um, particular show, this entire podcast, you probably have your own ideas already. But one is, either um, whoever the editor is or Muhammad himself is equating himself to Old Testament, New Testament prophets. Um, you know, he's taking away Jesus walking on water, performing miracles and all that kind of stuff. He is only making the point that Jesus was a prophet of God or Allah and working for him, but didn't have any magical powers. But then there's the other school of thought, 
is that what factions, what various forms of Christianity was he, you know, exposed to? You know, was it Machianism? Was it Docetism? Well, more than likely, he was exposed to one of these where Jesus was actually a human that was crucified or killed by the Romans and not actually God himself. So there's a couple of schools of thought to think about that. But more than likely, I'm going with my first position that he probably felt this way because he wanted, to, he wanted the equality with Jesus. He wanted the equality with Moses and with Noah, so on and so forth. Now, just to make it interesting, because maybe the other position is right, but let's take a little passage from out of the Quran. Now, I'm going to do my best Muhammad voice, okay, in, in quotation. That they said, in a boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear like they crucified him. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety, they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power and wise. And that is in the Quran under Surah 4. So this probably sounds familiar from a handful of episodes ago, right? The view that Jesus only appeared to be crucified and did not actually die. Well, this concept predates Islam by centuries, and it's found in several apocryphal Gospels. Now, remember we talked about Arrhenius in his book Against Heresies. Well, you remember, he, he writes about the Gnostics and their belief that just bear a remarkable resemblance with the Islamic view. Now, I'm going to give you another quote from Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 24, and Section 40, in case you happen to have it and want to look it up. I begin a quote in my best Irenaeus voice. And now I begin. He did not himself suffer death, but Simon, a certain man of Cyrene, being compelled before the cross in his stead, so that this later being transfigured by him, that he might be thought to be Jesus, was crucified. Though ignorance and error, while Jesus himself received the form of Simon, and standing by, laughed at them. For since he was an incorporeal power, and the mind of the unborn father, he transfigured himself as he pleased, and thus ascended to him who had sent him, deriding them, inasmuch as he could not be laid hold of, and was invisible to all. End quote. So that's fascinating, right? So we have a bit of an issue here, because we have Irenaeus, who's writing sometime around the 170s or 180s in his book called Against Heresies, and he has Jesus doing a complete body swap. It wasn't Jesus, it wasn't God on the cross who actually suffered, because God cannot suffer. But then yet, what sins did he pay for if it wasn't him on the cross? What, it wasn't his blood that spilled? So basically what Irenaeus is saying here is that Jesus did a body swap with this Simon from Cyrene. And Jesus and Simon's body stood there laughing at those who thought they were actually crucifying Christ himself. So that is really, really interesting. So we've got another Gnostic writing that's found in the Nag Hammadi Library. And it's called the Second Treaty of the Great Seth. And it has a, a very similar view of Jesus' death as well. And I will begin a, a quick little um, paragraph here. I was not afflicted at all, 
yet I did not die in solid reality, but in what appears, in order that I not be put to shame by them. And then also another one from this treaty is, Another, their father, was the one who drank the gall and the vinegar. It was not I. Another was the one who lifted up the cross on his shoulders, who was Simon. Another one whom they put the crown of thorns. But I was rejoicing in the height over all the riches of the archons and the offspring of their error and their conceit. And I was laughing at their ignorance. And that is in the Coptic Apocalypse of Peter. Likewise reveals the same views of Jesus' death. Actually, excuse me. Both of those are from the um, Treaty of the Great Seth. And this one is from the Coptic of um, the Apocalypse of Peter. So I begin the quote. I saw him, Jesus, seemingly being seized by them. And I said, what do I see, O Lord? That is yourself whom they take, and that you are grasping unto me. Or who is this one, glad and laughing on the tree? And this is another one whose feet and hands they are striking. The Savior said to me, He whom you saw on the tree, glad and laughing, this is the living Jesus. But this one, into whose hands and feet they drive the nails in his fleshy part, which is the substitute being put to shame, the one who came into being in his likeliness. But look at him and me. But I, when I had looked, said, Lord, no one is looking at you. Let us flee this place. But he said to me, I have told you, leave the blind alone. And you see how they do not know what they are saying. For the son of their glory instead of my servant, they have put to shame. And I saw someone about to approach us, resembling him, even him who is laughing on the tree. And he was with a Holy Spirit, and he is the Savior. And there was a great, ineffable light around him, and the multitude of ineffable and invisible angels blessing him. And when I looked at him, the one who gives praise was revealed. And I end quote. So, Islam's view on Jesus and Christianity are very different, as, the, as they view Jesus as a prophet and a messenger of God, or Allah, but not actually the Son of God, but more of a prophet in alignment with Muhammad. Now, in Islam, they believe that Jesus was, in fact, born of the Virgin Mary, as described in the Gospels, well, at least in Matthew and Luke's, right? But in the Quran, the second coming of Jesus will be the sign of Judgment Day, as seen in the Revelation of John. So they actually seem to like that book after all, and enjoyed seeing um, Jesus with this aerial battle over the Colosseum with Satan, right? So they do not accept the claim for the resurrection at all. And look at the Trinity. The Trinity, which is the foundation of Christ the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as blasphemous as there can only be one supreme God, Allah. And I think a major difference is that in Islam, man is created perfect and without sin. Where in Christianity, well, they propose that we were all born into sin as a result of the fall of man. Obviously, referring to Adam and Eve being exiled from the Garden of Eden.
And all children of Adam and Eve are now automatically born into sin and need salvation in order to go to heaven. Where in Islam, basically, you can only go to heaven by the grace and the will of Allah. He decides, ultimately, you can do whatever you want. You can be great and still be cast into hell. Where in Christianity, you have to beg Jesus. You have to access Je uh, excuse me, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior to atone for those sins, which we talked about over and over and over again, which is just basically symbolic in those particular Gospels and misinterpreted through the centuries. But in terms of last days or the rapture, well, Islam believes that there will be a bodily resurrection and a final judgment. And all Muslims will go to heaven, but some must be purged of their sins first. And all non-Muslims or infidels will go to, you guess it, Muslim hell. Well, Muslim's version of hell is more than likely very similar to what early Christians interpreted hell as, taken, of course, from the um, um, Coptic Apocalypse of Peter that we just took a couple um, sentences from. And these were widely in circulation for the first 500 years of the Common Era, and especially in Ethiopia, where fragments of this apocalypse was discovered in current day, right? So this idea of hell, it was filled with fire, brimstone, homosexuals being tortured for eternity, blasphemers having their tongues cut out, etc. However, Muslim heaven was not quite the same, whereas Christians saw, you know, mostly white angels with blonde curly hair, singing with lots of flowers all around. And this is not what Muslims imagine at all, as they were also greeted, but by 40 virgins, as a reward for their good works while on earth. And of course, the Quran says absolutely nothing about what reward Muslim women get once they go to heaven. Of course. So for the remainder of this episode, I want to go ahead and dig a little bit deeper into the borrowed narratives that are taken from the Bible, right? Old Testament, New Testament, as well as some fables told in paganism. Now the Quran, the Quran is the central religious text of all of Islam and accepted as true by two billion Muslims. And it contains references to more than 50 people and events that are found in that Bible. Now, while the stories told in each book generally are comparable, there are also some notable differences, changing out some characters, the names, the events, the sequences. And knowing that the version is written, the version written in Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, and that they predate the Quranic versions, scholars can reason that the Quran's versions as being derived directly from the earlier source materials. And Muslims understand that the Quran's version to be absolute knowledge from an omnipotent God, Allah. And as such, Muslims generally hold that the earlier versions, told in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are distorted through flawed processes of transmission and misinterpretations, and over time to be considered the Quran's version to be more accurate. Bible 2.0. So this is important. So basically the stance that Islam is trying to say 
is that, yeah, you might see some very similar stories borrowed from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we might have moved things around a little bit and cleaned it up some, but that's because Allah told us the real story, how it really went down, and that the, those prophets, like Zechariah and Moses and Isaiah and Noah, whatever, they all got it wrong is what they're saying, right? It's very, very interesting. Now, apart from the Old Testament and the New Testament and the borrowed stories that were converted to make them a little bit more Islam, um, we really need to talk about the juicy stuff. I want to talk about the paganism in the stories, in the Quran, right? That's where the good stuff is. And we know that the Old Testament writers did it too, and we know that the New Testament writers did it as well. But the Quran, the most perfect updated version, Bible 2.0, Judaism, Christianity, they got it wrong. Here's the right message told by the one and only true God, Allah. Now, apart from Muslim myths, little is really known about the history and the background of the Kaaba. But we do know that the Roman historian Diodorus Siculus, he commented that there was in Arabia a temple that was greatly revered by the Arabs. And it's more than likely that it was the Kaaba that he had in mind. And it was also later mentioned to have existed in the second century by Ptolemy, the geographer who mentions it in his work, calling it the Makoraba. Very similar. But the Kaaba, what was it really? Well, we know, we have the understanding that the Kaaba was a sanctuary that was dedicated to pagan deities and idol worship. And the accounts of the campaign of Abraha also note that it was a place of pagan worship, and this is all the way into the sixth century. So clearly about 400 years of pagan idol worship. And information on the distribution of the offices among the sons of Qusay showed that the worship of the sanctuary had developed into a regulated cult several generations before Muhammad's innovation. The historian Hergrone said that sacred worship may have developed around the area because of the Zam Zam Spring was found in this waterless place. And pre-Islamic history tells us that many Arabian tribes were actually stone worshippers. This is also mentioned in the Shahi al-Bukhari, volume 5, item number 661. The Old Testament also talks about Mideast pagan groups that worship stones. So Muhammad, he basically incorporated the Kaaba's paganistic roots into Islam to give the Muslims a sense of identity, perhaps legitimacy and uniqueness. He also wanted to ease the Arab strain of moving from paganism to Islam by continuing the practices of their fathers. And I'll go out on a limb here, just identifying that Mohammed or the later errors probably saw that it worked for Christianity and nobody balked at it once. Seeing that Christianity is loaded with pagan festivals, pagan events, pagan holidays, even pagan saga stories built inside of the New Testament stories, with representing Jesus as opposed to pagan gods. So he more than likely realized that it was working for them and how it worked for the pagans transitioning to Christianity. Well, why not do it with the Arab pagan stories and just incorporate it around himself and Allah, the God of the Arabs? Makes sense. But what do we know about the pagan gods and their rituals? Well, there were roughly 360 idols around the Kaaba. And the pilgrimages to the Kaaba were all pagan pilgrimages. 
The ritual procession around the Kaaba were part of pagan belief and customs. The white robes worn by the pilgrims were from pagan faiths. The veneration of the Kaaba and black stone are derived from the pagan rituals and beliefs themselves. And pagans called out to the names of their pagan gods as they circled around the Kaaba. And today, Muslims call out Allah's name instead. Still the same thing. Pagans ran between the nearby hills. Muhammad authorized Muslims to do that in the Quran as well. And probably ran between the hills himself. Now, as you can imagine, there was a chief pagan god as well. And his name was Hubal. H-U-B-A-L, who could also be called the god of Mecca and of the Kaaba. Now, the god Hubal is not mentioned even once in the Quran. Nowhere. Not at all. Not like in the Old Testament, how the god Yahweh, god of the Jews, like to constantly, you know, kick ass on Baal and, you know, and all these other different um, nations' gods. But we had goddesses. The goddess Alat, the goddess Aluza and Manat, who were also worshipped at the Kaaba, are, however, mentioned in the Quran. Well, it looks like our boy um, Muhammad actually really favored for the, um, for the female goddesses, but he didn't care much for uh, Hubal, evidently. But it is thought that the Kaaba was originally set up for astral worship. Golden suns and moons are repeatedly mentioned as the votive gifts. And some pagans regarded the Kaaba as a temple devoted to the sun, the moon, and the five planets. And in the Quran, Muhammad goes and ignores all those pagan rituals that surrounded the temple for centuries. And instead, he makes up historical references for the Kaaba on his own. Muhammad claims that Abraham and Ishmael, from the old Jewish Testament, laid the foundations and built the Kaaba. You see that in the Quran, chapter 2, verse 127. Muhammad even claims that God ordained the Kaaba as a sacred house. That's seen in the Quran, chapter 5, verse 97. And he also claimed that it was the first temple ever built for mankind. Chapter 3, verse 97. Which is obvious fiction, especially since we have temples and ziggurats that predate the Kaaba by, what, thousands of years? And in history... It's only Muhammad that ever claims that it was a place that was built by Abraham. Because when you go digging in the Old Testament and the Talmud and any other Jewish literature that we have, we find no mentioning of Abraham ever traveling to Mecca to build a house of worship anywhere. And lastly, the late Tara Hussein, who is one of the most famous Egyptian professors of Arabic literature, he said that the Islamic myth of Abraham building the Kaaba actually came into trend just before the rise of Islam. Matter of fact, he comments, let me get the quote, The case of this episode is very obvious because it is of recent date and came into trend just before the rise of Islam. Islam exploited it for religious reasons. Quoted in the Nizar al-Islam by Anwar al-Jundi. So what kind of theological problems does this potentially present to Muhammad? Well, we know that every living man in Mecca before and during Muhammad's life had at some point a relationship with the Kaaba. And if the Kaaba was, in fact, the house of Allah, then why did Muhammad order his followers to face Jerusalem, the temple of the Jews? 
Now, Muhammad's revelation in the Quran says that when Allah had Muhammad change prayer directions, it was a test for the Muslims. Test of fate, right? Now, this sounds like a lame excuse on Muhammad's part, if you ask me. Because what's the test? Face another direction? Well, shit, I can do that. That does not appear to be such an incredible challenge. No more than likely, the real answer is that, through his early contacts with Christians and Jews in the Middle East, he knew that their faiths were centered in Jerusalem and also monotheistic. Consequently, what does he do? He aligns himself with their faith and selected Jerusalem as the direction for prayer in hopes that Jews and Christians would receive him as their prophet. It's the same exact thing that he did with the pagan rituals by including them into his Islam. But then about a year and a half after the migration to Medina, after the Jews had thoroughly rejected him and his ideas of Islam, well, then he decides to turn the direction of prayer away from Jerusalem and aim it to Mecca, the center of pagan worship in the Arabian Peninsula. And you see this in the Quran 2, 144. Just as he had compromised with the pagan idol worshippers in Mecca by sanctioning and worshipping the pagan goddesses Lot, Uzzah, and Manat. So now he hoped to gain favor with the pagan Arab tribes that worshipped the Kaaba in Mecca. And then he authenticated the pagan focus of attention. So that's really interesting, right? And I think it also opens up and exposes, more than likely, um, you know, again, his successes were backsliding Christians all the way into the 6th and 7th centuries. That was the success of Islam. You had Christians that continuously, all the way up into those centuries, that doubted the Jesus story. As there were so many, how could you hold on to an entire belief of the crucifixion and all this stuff that comes down in the narration of the New Testament when all these other stories are in circulation at the same time? And only knowing that church fathers under the Roman, Roman Empire are constantly trying to burn them, right? Trying to snuff them out. And even like, um, you know, calling them heretics and killing them in many instances. And then you have, but that was the opportunity for Christians that um, just needed solidification, needed unification. But the Jews, well, they were a different creature, a different animal on their own. Even though there were various different acts of Judaism, they all did have their core purpose. They just had different versions and variations of um, uh, messianism right? So being pacifistic or being militant. And most didn't want the militant faction. And we know this, and which resulted into the different variations of Christianity. So that's just something to really look at. But back to Muhammad, after Muhammad took Mecca, he cleansed the Kaaba, right? The big black cube. And inside the Kaaba were many representations of the earlier prophets. When his men began to cleanse the Kaaba and wash out their representation of idols, Muhammad basically placed his hands on the picture of Jesus and Mary, which they hung up in there, and said, Wash out all except what is below my hands. Again, Muhammad went against his own principles and sanctioned his definition of idolatry. Interesting, right? And then Muhammad begins to sanction the pagan rituals that were concerned with the Kaaba, such as the kissing of the black stone, 
or the touching of the Kabbalah, which you still see, right? They're all down and they're praying and they're touching it. And then circling the structure, you've all seen that picture, right? Thousands of Muslims circling around the structure and then running between the two hills, so on and so forth. But later, Umar said to the black stone, in quotation, I know that you are a stone that neither helps nor hurts. And if the messenger of God has not kissed you, I would not kiss you. And you see that in the Shahi al-Bukhari, volume two, item number 667. But then he kissed the stone. Like Umar, many other Muslims followed the prophet in their practice of veneration of pagan idolatry. Now, before Muhammad's time, there was a group of people in Arabia who also despised idolatry, and they were known as the Hanafites. Now, even the Hanafites saw that kissing of the black stone was considered pagan idolatry. And during one of the pre-Islamic Eids, which is basically a Muslim festival of some sort, well, the Qurashi, a group of Arab clans that historically inhabited and controlled the city of Mecca and its Kaaba, were worshipping their idols, slaying sacrifices, praying to it, to the idols, and making circles around the Kaaba, just as they did each year for the festival. And some Hanafites saw them and stood apart from them and said, in quotation, By the Lord, our people have nothing left of the faith of Abraham. What is this stone that we should encircle it? It can neither hear nor speak, neither hurt nor help. O oh, our people, look out for your souls, for by the Lord are you altogether wanting. End quotation. Now, if I didn't say so already, or at least allude to it, well, the Hanafites were basically a group of people living in the Middle East, Medina, Mecca, basically Saudi Arabia, that held to the belief in the monotheistic God of Abraham, only to later convert full-on to Islam. So they were basically Jews in transition. Well, one of the Hanafites was Obidalia, who later did, in fact, embrace Islam like many did. But he immigrated to Abyssinia, along with other Muslims, and then only to later in his life to transition and become a Christian. And after his, after his um, conversion, excuse me, he basically said to his friends, in quotation here, we as Christians see, but you are only blinking. That is, you cannot see plainly. So with all this condemnation to pagan idolatry in connection to the Kaaba, so why then does Muhammad decide to kiss the stone and to worship it? Why did he incorporate paganism into his faith in the first place when he despised the ununification of the multiple gods in the pantheon that was creating such decisiveness in so many different people? No unification, no, no solidity. Why did he incorporate idolatry into his new invention? He had opportunity to discard it altogether. There is even the Quranic story of Abraham, how he chided those who worshipped idols, as seen in Surah 6 and 21, and so on and so forth. And he said it was sinful in God's sight. Yet here we have Muhammad walking around the Kaaba, just like the pagans did, all while kissing the stone just like the pagans did for four centuries beforehand. Even Umar knew it was an empty and false prophet 
our, our false place of worship. Yet he followed Muhammad in kissing the stone as well. So I don't know. Was it part of the conversion that we talked about in the past? Maybe so, and more than likely. But folks, it cannot be denied that an entire pagan theology and its rituals was adopted by Islam. After Muhammad had one of his convenient revelations, of course, and made it religiously correct. And another Muslim myth concerning the Kaaba is that anyone who prays under the Kaaba's water pipe automatically becomes as pure as on the days when their mother bore him. Not her, just him. You know, sorry ladies. But Muslims actually have a hard time accepting Christ's atonement. But will follow for total forgiveness of sins by uttering a little prayer under a water spout. And then some later Muslim editors, redactors, and theologians began to invent a number of different myths about Mecca and the Kaaba. Now, one Islamic tradition is, according to Abdullah ibn Abbas, who's also known as ibn Abbas, is one of the cousins of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. And Muhammad is said to have said, in quotation, this is my Muhammad voice, the black stone came from paradise, and at the time of its descent, it was whiter than milk. But that the sins of the children of Adam have caused it to turn black by their mere touching it. That, on the day of resurrection, when it will have two eyes, which it will see and know all those who have touched it and kissed it, and when it will have a tongue to speak, it will give evidence in favor of those who have touched it and kissed it. That's Mohammed speaking, according to one of his cousins, anyway. Now let's get back to Juicy again, because I've got a feeling that you guys are drying up on me a little bit in your cars right now. So, Muslim writers, redactors, editors, well, they were creative, just like New Testament writers, just like the Jewish writers of the days of old. But these Muslim writers, well, they said that the Kaaba was actually first constructed in heaven. And not just made in heaven, but 2,000 years before the creation of the world where actually, if you could fly there right now to heaven, to Islamic heaven, that is, not Judaic heaven, there's actually a model of it that still remains there. You can go up and see it right now. And Adam, according to this tradition, Adam was the one who erected the first Kaaba on earth, exactly below the spot of its perfect model that's up in heaven. Well, it gets better because 10,000 angels were appointed to guard Adam's Kaaba down on earth. But obviously, they didn't do a good job. God then instructed Abraham to rebuild it. So I don't know. Pretty juicy, right? Now, there are actually a number of other myths about the mysterious cabal. Not only just being made in heaven by Adam and, you know, rebuilt by Abraham and guarded by 10,000 angels. But among them are that Mecca is the navel of the world. Literally, your belly button that the Kaaba was established at the creation of the world. The Kaaba that was literally built sometime around the 2nd century, not during creation, but is the world's belly button. And it was, unfortunately, destroyed during the Great Flood that happened sometime around, what was it, 2340 BCE? 
only to be rebuilt by Abraham. And I think Abraham supposedly lived before the flood. I might be wrong on that. And that Gabriel provided the black stone. There we are. So there are also other legends about Zamzam, the Zamzam water from the nearby well. Remember we talked about that previously? Now, some Muslims say that there are references to the Kaaba, even in the Old Testament. And here's a few that I'm going to go ahead and make some of the claims for you. Now, these will go quick. There's only four of these here. But these are the claims that Muslims make that the Kaaba is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, number one, Muslims hope that Genesis chapter 35, verses 4, 14, and 15 refer to the Kaaba, since the word Beth-el literally means house of God, and that the Jewish temple wasn't built until much later. But as the Bible shows, Bethel is actually a town in Palestine, as shown in Genesis chapter 12. Also, Jacob built an altar, not a temple to God, and Abraham also built an altar to the Lord, as seen in Genesis 12.7. So nowhere could you assume that any of those verses had anything to do with a temple built in the second century in um, Saudi Arabia. Now, number two, Muslims claim that David mentions the cabal in Psalms 84.6. And it goes like this. If Baca was a location, it was not known where it existed in the Bible. But a more correct interpretation taken in context of the whole Psalms is that since Baca means weeping, it means valley of tears. David could be saying that he longs for the presence of God and that even through difficult times, Baca, God will be with him and will turn up his tears to joy. Anyway, and then number three, Muslims also think that Isaiah 60 verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar, Kedar, K-E-D-A-R, refer to the um, Arabian people worshiping the Kaaba. While reading through Isaiah 60.7, it shows that Kedar's flocks are going to be sacrificed on the altar. So are Muslims saying that Arabs were going to be human sacrifices of some sort? I don't know. Maybe not, but I doubt it. And then number four, some Muslims think that since the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is cubic, it also resembles the Kaaba, and thus is a prophecy about the Kaaba. But the Kaaba is not a perfect cube. It's not even close, actually. The structure is actually 50 feet high, high with a sloping roof. The shorter walls are 30 feet, 35 feet long, and the facade is 40 foot long. So it's not even, even close. So now what other pagan traditions and rituals and stories did Muhammad borrow for his religion? Well, one is called the night journey. Yes, the night journey. Well, the night journey basically describes Muhammad's ascent up into heaven, right? And it's briefly mentioned in the Surah 17.1 and described in the Sahih al-Bukhari in several of his volumes, actually, but notably in volume number one, number 345. Now, Muhammad's story here actually parallels a Zoroastrianism story that was very heavily practiced in um, Persia, especially the Middle East, common day Iran, Iraq, but it actually, that religion actually began some 600 BCE and pretty much right alongside with Judaism, if you would. Now it's found in an old Pahlavi book known as the Book of Arta Varaf. That's right, the Book of Arta Varaf. 
Now, the Zoroastrianism story, it describes the journey of a saintly priest by the name of Arta Varaf, who went into a trance, and a spirit went up into the heavens under the guidance of an angel named Sarash. And so basically, he passed up from one utopia to the next, going through the seven heavens, to another until he reached the presence of Ormazd, who was the great deity of the entire universe. And Zoroastrianism, that is. Now, when Arta saw everything in heaven, that he, that the inhabitants were so happy, and they were just, you know, praising and loving and everything like that, Ormaz commanded him to return to earth as his messenger and to go tell the people everything that he had seen and heard. Also, the Zoroastrians, they taught long before Islam that there was a marvelous, mysterious tree in paradise called Humaya, which corresponds very neatly and closely to the Sidra, the Lot tree of Islam. And then finally, there is another Zoroastrian work, and it's called the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong probably, but the, the Zerdashnama, which has a story of how Zoroaster himself ascended into the heavens and obtained permission to visit hell, where he found Ariman, the devil. And all of these stories are paralleled nice and clean and conveniently in the Quran. No doubt Muhammad heard these stories and decided to put them on level with Zoroaster and others. So now we have Muhammad copying the Zoroastrianism stories and claiming to have these experiences as well. Again, while Muslims claim that paganism influenced Christianity, we say that paganism is part of the core of Islamic faith and theology. All right, let's go back to a little bit more juicy shit again. I can sense you guys are drying up on me here. Let's talk about Azazel, the devil. Well, in the Muslim hadith, the devil does have a certain name, and the name is Azazel. Now, the name doesn't occur in the Quran per se, but the name may actually come from Leviticus 16.8, 10 and 26, as the scapegoat in Hebrew is called and referred to Azazel. And you know the whole scapegoat story. I don't need to go through that, right? Where during the Passover, two lambs are received. One is slaughtered. The other one is released into the wild. That would be the scapegoat. That would be Azazel. Now, from another source, it means the demon of the desert. And that would more so come in Isaiah. Probably Isaiah 14, Isaiah 7, somewhere around there. But there are other apocryphal Jewish books as well. In Enoch the Apocalypse of Abraham, that also mention Azazel. Now, Islamic traditions have us develop their story, and Muslims associate Azazel with the fallen angels, Harut and Marut. And Ibn Abbas tradition has the strongest Islamic references developing it as Satan's name, before the fall of Adam. So in a nutshell, Muslim editors take the name Azazel from the Jews but they put a Zoroastrian spin on it. Now, Muslims, they believe that God created Azazel, who worshipped God for about a thousand years while he was in the seventh hell, which in itself is derived from the Ishtar and Inanna tradition some 3000 BCE. Then he ascended a stage at a time from seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, all the way up while worshipping God. And finally, he reached the earth. 
Elsewhere, Muslim tradition says that he stayed for 3,000 years by the gate of paradise with hostile intentions against Adam and Eve. And he was very jealous of them, we were told through the story. Now let's compare that Zoroastrian narrative with what we find in Quranic text and Islamic text. Now, Ahriman, Ahriman is the devil in Islam, and Azazil is the devil or the evil one in Zoroastrianism. Now, here's the, um, the text that come from Islam. Ahriman remained in the abyss, there to commit hurt and injury and mischief and darkness, where Armazd, or Allah, knew of his existence and plans. It went on like this for 3,000 years. The evil spirit was ignorant of Armazd's existence, but eventually, rising out of the pit, saw Armazd's light. Then Araman was filled with hostility and envy. He set out to destroy. So we're almost done. We're getting through this thing. Maybe another 10 minutes or so here. But we have to talk about the Sabians to tie this thing up into a nice little bow. So who were the Sabians, and why did Muhammad regard them as believers in the true monotheistic God Allah? Well, the Sabians are mentioned at least three times in the Quran, one in chapter 2, 6, 2. The believers, Jews, Christians, and Sabians, whoever believe in God and the last day and does what is right shall be rewarded by their Lord. They have nothing to fear or regret. And then again in chapter 5, verse 69, Believers, Jews, Sabians, and Christians, whoever believes in God on the last day and does what is right, shall have nothing to fear or to regret. And then lastly, in chapter 22, verse 17, as for the true believers, the Jews, the Sabians, and the Christians, and the Magians, and the pagans, God will judge them on the day of resurrection. God bears witness to all things. So, although it is known about the Sabians, it's not completely comprehensive, but enough has been written about them to determine at least a basic understanding of their practices and, of course, their beliefs. And most of the writings are from Islamic sources. And guys coming from a white dude living in the United States, I apologize if I mispronounce their names. So, some of the, some of the writers are, and here's the first one, Ibn Hazam, and his writing is called Fisal wa Mila. And the second guy is Ibn al-Nadim in the Farish Shaharistani in the Treaty on Sex. Then the last one is Masadi in Maruj al-Dahab. Okay, whew, really glad to get those out of the way. Now the first one, in Ibn Hazam, writing in Fasal wa Milil, he basically identifies the people then known as Haranians as the Sabians, mentioned in the Quran. Now, Hazam writes that they honored the seven planets and the 12 constellations, and they have five times a day of prayer, the same times that the Muslims pray. They fast in Ramadan. They venerate and turn to the um, Kaaba in prayer as well. Hazam also says that they also worship the stars as well as the idols. Hazam further claims that Allah sent Abraham to turn them away from the pagan worship, but Abraham was not successful. Now, when we compare all of these early writings about the Sabians, well, we find that they inhabited Syria at the time and spread from there. 
and they were definitely pagans, having a mixture of Babylonian and Hellenic religion combined together. And then the prophets that they professed to follow were Hermes and Agathodamian, who they identified in the Shaharastians' time with Seth and Idris, which is basically seen in the Old Testament's book Enoch, and um, which was ultimately removed from the Old Testament come 16th century. But you can still find the Enoch 1 and Enoch 2. Now, gods who were worshipped were the gods of the seven-week days, the god of the jinn, the lord of the hour, the god who makes arrows fly, the god of Tamas, a variation of one of the previously other mentioned. Now, Haman, the prince and the father of the gods, the god north, the, the god of fortune, etc. They all kept the Eid of their own. Remember, we talked about the Eid was it was basically the Muslim, Muslim festival. And further, the Sabians made star worship a chief characteristic of their system. So with all that said, and it was a lot said, <laughs> did Islam get five times a day prayer from star-worshipping Sabians? What about fasting during Ramadan? From the Sabians too? The Eid, remember the festival? Did that also come from the Sabians? But it seems very odd to me that Muhammad, the man whose central doctrine was the oneness of God, that he would include pagan worshipers as those who were believers in the true God, the Sabians, the Christians. If Muhammad were a true prophet, how could he have made such a big mistake? How did astral star worshipers get included into the Quran as those who also worshipped the true God, Allah? How could Muhammad's revelation be such an error? How could he have gotten it wrong? He spent 23 years receiving the messages directly from Allah through Gabriel. And guys, it's noteworthy that just as Muhammad incorporated the pagan veneration of the Kaaba and the black stone into Islam, he also incorporated the Sabian times of prayer, the Eid and the fasting also into Islam, into his religion, into his creation, his invention. And once again, Muhammad didn't fully know the subject he was synthesizing into Islam. And I've read nothing about their doctrine that would have led Muhammad to include them as followers of the true one God that he preached about. Perhaps he learned a small portion about those religions, the Sabians' religion, and believed it to be right as well. Or maybe he just liked some of it and thought that it was clever and useful. But little did he know that under that veneer of words lay many theological differences. Well, we have one more thing to talk about before we bring this episode to a conclusion. And that's Huris. H-O-U-R-I-S. Huris. So, why are Huris important? Because the Quran mentions them several times. And 4450, 5220, 5560, 5620, and 7833. So who and what the hell are they? Well, guys, they're bashful virgins. They're fair as coral and ruby, dark-eyed youths, high-bosomed maidens with big-ass boobs. And in some, they are creatures put in paradise primarily for men's sexual pleasures. Each man will have at least two. 
Now, this concept is derived directly from Zoroastrianism. In Zoroastrianism, in their writings, they are referred to as fairies, spirits in bright array and beautiful to captivate men's hearts. The name Huris comes from a Pahlavic source, as does the Islamic word jinn, which simply means genie. So in conclusion, it's not difficult to see how Muhammad heard various sacred religious stories and rites and practices and traditions and incorporated them into his own religion called Islam. Perhaps he thought that parts of those religions contained some truths, so he adopted what he thought to be correct. But nevertheless, the part of the foundation of Islam, the heaviest part of Islam, is in fact heavy-rooted in paganism. That's it, pure and simple. He adopted pieces that he liked and pieces that he thought would be clever to lure pagans into his religion. It was comfortable. It was convenient. It was easy to transition. That's it.